supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. Looks like the silent assassin disappeared again. Yeah, it happens. Well, he did promise occasional appearances. So let the poor guy have a Saturday night to himself. He's been working all these Saturday nights. So, Although, wait a minute. We don't get Saturday nights to ourselves. Well, that's not true. You took a Saturday night off a couple weeks ago. Yes, I did. I'm the only one that's got to be here every week, I guess. <sighs> Such is life. But welcome to, uh, I guess, what will be the first show of year eight here of Spooky South Coast. Because last year we had our big seventh anniversary show. Thank you to everybody out there that reached out to us. Seven years now we've been talking to you about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. Broadcasting live here on Spooky South Coast. Here on the WBSM Airwaves. On SpookySouthCoast.com. On our Spooky TV channel where you can kind of see what's going on in the studio. You know, nothing really exciting happens, but... At least you can see what's going on. You can tell that we're not, like, making fun of you behind your back. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Colicusis. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good place to meet other like-minded people who listen to the show and want to talk about the topics that we discuss in a little bit more of an in-depth fashion. You know, sometimes the, the conversation in the chat room stays on topic. Sometimes it doesn't, just like the conversation that we're having here on the show. And Spooky TV is also where you can find our other programs during the course of the week as well, such as Spooky Crossroads, Wednesdays at 9, and Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice, uh, Tuesdays at 7. So there's uh, more programming options available for you if you're a fan of the show and you're a fan of the Spooky South Coast Way. You can check it out all week long. And I'm excited about going forward here in the future of Spooky South Coast because we plan on making the show more interactive both this year and in the years to come with the audience. So... With that being said, the phone numbers are always available to you to call in, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. Email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. We can get it right here in the studio, and we'll eventually work in like more options for people to get a hold of us. We've tried other things What about past. Twitter? We, you can, do we have a Twitter? We do. Our Twitter, our Twitter handle is at SpookySC, but the reason why I don't give the Twitter out on the phone is because... Uh, give the Twitter out over the air and have people get a hold of us that way while we're on the show is because it's really hard to check the tweets as they're coming in because they come in on my phone and we don't have enough computer space yeah. to, to get everything going. But maybe we can make that more interactive. I'll have to check the studio computer to see if Twitter is allowed because only certain functions are available on that computer. And my poor little phone can only handle so much <laughs> of what's going on uh, here during the program. But again, you can always get a hold of us the good old-fashioned way at 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. Those numbers are posted right up there on the main page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And that's also where you can find the information each week about the guest on the show. And you can find out about tonight's guest, who we're very excited to talk about. We've had her on the program before, but uh, this is going to be an even more... The, the first discussion that we had with her was pretty fascinating, especially when you're like me and you want to go kind of beyond the you know the skin layer of the paranormal tv shows you want to get down to the blood and guts of them and uh, and we talked about that with her the first time around now we're going to talk about actually 
forming groups and joining groups and getting into paranormal investigation yourself. And uh, our guest tonight is Deanna Kelly. She is a Muslim-American paranormal investigator with Haunted North Carolina. She lectures on many issues, from women in Islam to the paranormal, and has lived and conducted studies throughout Central Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. She is also the editor of GhostVillage.com, the Internet's premier paranormal destination. And we're going to be talking tonight about her new book, entitled So You Want to Hunt Ghosts, A Down-to-Earth Guide, and I'm guessing that the pun is completely intended with that. That's one thing that I've noticed, too, uh, that it seems like with groups these days, it's not the same as it was in you know, 2004, 5, 6, 7, when everybody was all about the, the ghost hunters methodology, and they wanted to do it because they see Jason and Grant do it on TV. And now it seems to be that there's more uh, of an emphasis on groups finding their own voice and finding their own methods. Now, there, there seems to be a time uh, where everything goes that way, where everything kind of finds its own voice, and, and that seems to be the way that it's going now. And we'll talk about all that with Deanna. But if you want to call in during the course of the program and share your own thoughts, uh, please feel free to do so. 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And then you can let us know you know if you're involved in the field let us know what it was that sparked your interest how you went about forming a group and if uh if you haven't done so and you're thinking about doing so definitely pick up Dion's book so you want to hunt ghosts because i've read a lot of these books a lot of these how-to books when it comes to investigating the paranormal and forming groups and this is one of the the first ones that i've seen that actually brings up a lot of the questions surrounding the field and surrounding forming groups. And I think, Deanna, what, what impressed me most is the first question that you answered in there that a lot of people, the first question that you asked in there that a lot of people don't want to answer is whether or not there was even a need for someone to get involved in the field. I think a lot of people want to do it because uh, they hear other people's experiences and they see people's experiences on the TV shows and they want to get out there and do it for themselves. But you make sure that the first thing they ask is whether or not they really do want to be involved in it. Exactly. You know, people see it on TV and they think it's really, really cool. And it is cool. I mean, it's definitely cool. But a lot of people don't really understand what's involved in it and how much money it costs and, and how much time they have to put into it. And if it's something that they should be doing anyway, um, you know, there's plenty of ways to get your ghost fixed without actually becoming uh, an investigator. I, uh, probably the number one reason, though, that I hear from people when they say that they want to get involved in an investigation is because they want to know if it's for real or not. Mm-hmm. And it's it's never... You know, I, I want to find out if what other people are experiencing is real. It's always they want to have that personal uh, experience, and they want to have it happen to them. And does that remove a lot of the objectivity from paranormal investigation when you're going into it uh, headfirst in a subjective manner? Uh, I think so. And there's nothing wrong with wanting that experience. That experience itself is something that is really transformative and meaningful and for everyone who's had this experience it 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 matters so i i don't think there is anything wrong in wanting to have that but when you're doing certain types of investigation you really do have to allow yourself room to be super super skeptical and and um really think about what you're bringing into it whether it's your own prejudices or your own assumptions um 
Yeah, it, it removes a lot of the scientific inquiry that so many people suggest they're doing. And a lot of people don't understand how their very presence in a location can sometimes alter the dynamics considerably. Well, I mean, investigation is not for everybody. No. Experiencing the paranormal may be, though. If people want to get out there and, and have an encounter, there, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's, there's a difference, in, and you talk about this in the book, but there's a definite difference between wanting to have these experiences and want to investigate these experiences. Oh, completely. Yeah, completely. And, and it depends on your objective. If you want to have an experience, there's plenty of places you can go and, and public um, ghost hunts and events. If you want to investigate, then there's different types of investigation, and I talk about that in the book. There's um, client-based, where you really want to help the client. There's research-based, where you are doing more scientific stuff. There um, is spiritually, spiritual-based investigators, people who are want to help people from a spiritual perspective. And then there's legend trippers, which are people basically going out to have the, the experience and to document the history and the story. And all approaches are completely valid and completely cool in their own right. But people need to know. They need to know what they want to get from it. And I think a lot of people, when they first start out, they really don't know. And that's, I was going to say, that's one of the things that impressed me most about the book is the fact that you do lay it out there and have those categorizations when I think a lot of people aren't necessarily honest with themselves when they get involved with this, uh, which one of those camps they fall into. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think in the beginning you you may not know what you really believe or how you want to experience this, and that's part of the journey. And it's okay to say, hey, I'm still trying to figure things out. But some people walk in with assumptions already formed they just want to have the experience to prove what they already believe about it and that's perfectly okay but if you're going into people's homes and you're trying to empower people or are insisting that you're doing science you need to learn how to be more objective and a lot of people just you know they're just not doing it for whatever reason they really want to have the experience and they want to feel important because when you have this really cool thing happen to you it somehow validates your existence but people also want, in some cases, they want to be important. They want to be perceived as being important. And it's really easy to walk into the community and sort of become a personality. There's not a lot of um, – you don't really have to do a lot. Right. To become, yeah, to become well-known. So it's – And that's what, what makes the paranormal field so different than just about anything else is uh, because of the uh, – we'll call it the structure that's in place of, of how people can – uh, make money off of this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, those who do decide to, to utilize this as a, as a way to make profit, it usually involves, you know, conducting investigations publicly, uh, holding conventions, these different factors. And, and by doing that, of course, they have to get the, the celebrities from TV to come and be part of these events. And it's really the only field where you can rub up against, rub elbows uh, and work alongside these people that you see on television. I mean, I can't imagine any other, it's like, the way that I look at it is it's like a football fan being able to play uh, in an all-star game with a bunch of their favorite NFL players. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you don't see a lot of Jersey Shore conventions where, you know, right. people are buying Snooki and having that experience or the, the sort of, some sort of Kardashian I, social actually, hour. I actually drove by a Jersey Shore convention. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It was just the, uh, it was the line outside the free clinic. <laughs> Whoa, that was low. Yeah. <laughs> was low. But but oddly accurate. But yeah, you're right. I mean, people get a taste of this kind of really cool life and they can tune into a larger 
pop cultural pulse that's really hard to do in another in another capacity. So that's part of what makes it cool and and great. And I think there's a lot of positive things about that because I know Jeff Belanger always talks about this. People can literally become part of the story, you know. Right. And that is that is really great and empowering. And there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes they want to become the story rather than just being a part of the story. Especially if it involves just being at the center of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in my first book, Paranormal Obsession, I sort of looked at going to paranormal drama. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about that because I don't want to, like, feed the beast. But right. um, people act like there's something at stake, you know. I mean, people who, who you know, will never be on TV, will never have any you know real um make any money off of this they act like something's at stake and really in a lot of ways there are a lot of, there is a lot at stake because when you're doing this paranormal stuff whether it's bigfoot hunting or ufo or ghost hunting in a way you're asking really big questions about life and about our place in the world and the nature of reality you're having a metaphysical discussion whether you believe it or not so pe- there is a lot at stake for people involved in this because it's literally a worldview. It's a worldview, and it's a worldview that comes with a little bit of local fame sometimes, and people get overwhelmed and, and really excited about it. Well, and I know that you said you don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about, about the drama, but I do kind of want to talk about, and, and I guess drama does kind of fall into that category mm-hmm. a little bit, but I do want to talk about people's motivations for being involved mm-hmm. with, with the field. And once they do get involved, uh, where they allow their motivations to take them. And a few years ago, this would have been a completely different conversation because in 2006, 7, 8, you know, every group that was out there was trying to get themselves a pilot. They were trying yeah. to film a pilot and get themselves on TV. They were going to be the next reality show stars of an investigation-based show. But now we're seeing a focus more on shows like My Ghost Story and, mm-hmm. you know, all these uh, Paranormal Witness, Witness, these storytelling stories where it's it's not so much about your investigation techniques and about your group dynamics, and it's more about just sharing your experiences, which I think is part of a, a larger trend across the whole field. And I think that's kind of allowed some of these groups that went into that with that same motivation almost to discover the quote-unquote right way to be involved in it because now you know the pilots aren't there to be had there aren't going to be any more investigation based shows Mm -hmm. so that's kind of been freeing i think to some degree to a lot of these groups and and they're falling back in line with the way they should be doing things well i think that's an interesting take on it i never really thought about that although i do agree with you that the format of these shows are changing um it, it does seem that everybody and their brother and their mother and their third cousin has been on my ghost story mm-hmm. and that Guilty. always amazes me because i i have no i have no idea how to get on that show and i wrote a book about paranormal reality tv <laughs> it's like some sort of secret society but um, no it's a lot easier than to think if they can let a schlub like me and jeff on, <laughs> it's not that hard <laughs> i know i've just never i mean i've never tried it although it's it's cool that everybody's getting into the the actual narrative and the actual experience because that's really what counts that's what that's what makes a difference in people's lives. It's not the evidence that you collect because people can always contest that, mm-hmm. but nobody can really contest what you've experienced. You know, nobody can say, oh, no, you're wrong. You didn't experience it. They may not think you experienced what you say you did, but you experienced something. So, I mean, that's really uh, impressive. But I also, 
I also feel there's a shift happening among paranormal investigators in general where you're, I think you're right that there's a segment falling back in line with some uh, low-key investigation, but there's an emerging demographic of people who are getting into it just to be, in some ways, um, have some notoriety. Right. Uh, and they're really not interested in the investigation. They're interested in filming it and and developing a persona around that rather than just being an investigator. Well, and I've noticed that there's a number of people who uh... – within months of getting involved in this, start touting themselves as, as being a paranormal personality or, yeah. or a famous paranormal investigator. And yeah, as seen on YouTube. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and really, you know, my cat could say as seen on YouTube. I know. I know. The first time I ever saw that, I, I was sort of baffled. I didn't know YouTube was that important. Apparently so. Well, and of course, if you ever want to see the archives of Spooky South Coast, just check out our YouTube page. <laughs> I was going to say it's that important for the self-important. Yeah, that's yeah, true. But the the good thing about this technology is it is there to allow you to connect with other people and to be mm-hmm. part of this what we call a community. Even though that term is becoming a joke more and more every day, but you are part of something. And and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people that are in this field, that's what they're looking for. Uh, they're looking to be a part of something. And in the book, you do a great job of explaining to them that if that is what you're looking for, you know, don't be afraid to put that in your mission statement. And mm-hmm. I don't think that I've ever heard of a group that's contacted me, at least when they're getting going, that's ever clearly put out a mission statement other than, you know, we want to hunt ghosts. Yeah. And we do it free of charge, and we're we're skeptical and scientific, and we have right. like five psychics on board. And <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with psychics, but no. Yeah. But I know what you're saying. It's a, it's almost a cookie cutter description yeah. that works for any group, and it's not really a clear cut description of who your group is, who makes it up, and what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and I think a lot of people really need to think about that because I have gone through a couple of different groups, and in in some cases, I've experienced the whole founder cult mentality, where the group sort of oscillates around a personality rather mm-hmm. than a mission. And so people also need to think about those dynamics when you're going into a group, if it's really a good fit, because it's like any other social activity. You're not always going to get along with the people in the group. You're not always going to see that. It's like joining a church. You may love the message, but you may hate the people sitting in the pews. Well, there's a saying that a friend of mine came up with. Order is not maintained through a hierarchy of authority, but rather through continuity of uniform purpose. Those are really big words. (laughs) And and I totally agree with you. But But in short, what it's saying is it, it isn't the... You know, a pecking order that makes things order orderly. Yeah. It's everybody doing things for the same reason. Yeah, that, that makes things orderly and yeah. gets things done. Yeah, and you know, I've a lot of people have come up to me and like, well, I really want to do this. I want to get involved in a group, and I almost I'm beginning to really think that the group mentality is not an efficient way to organize a community at this point. Um, I think segments of the community need to be group-based, but it's almost stifling because if you're not with a group, it's really hard to go investigate anywhere now. Well, you're kind of preaching to the choir here with with my co-host Matt Moniz, who's pretty much always been an independent investigator. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, I do see, too, there is some benefit to starting off in a group, uh, which I think a number of individuals have done and then decided that it's not the right fit for them. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, you have to deal with a lot of dynamics, and it, it is it's not cheap to do this. You know, you have to purchase your equipment and spend gas money and, in some cases, pay to have access to sites. It's really not a it's, it's not a cheap hobby. And, you know, all hobbies cost money. Even if you're a gamer, you're going to spend money on that, and people often don't really get that, mm-hmm. that you also need a, a computer that can handle audio and video. And, a, you know, people don't think about that when they go buy their, like, three or $400 notebooks. That's not going to cut it. Um, so, you know, people don't kind of get all of these things that go into investigating. It really is a commitment. So if you want to become part of a group, you really have to think about the commitment, not just in terms of time and money, but also, um, you know, uh, family support. Because if you have a spouse who isn't into this, not everybody's down with you going out to strange places until 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Right, especially with different people that they might not necessarily yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the biggest problems uh, is that uh, you look at a lot of groups and they will say that because they don't have all the same bells and whistles that, you know, the other group in their area might have, that they feel like they're at a competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And even though it is important to have the equipment and to have the technology that you're speaking about, it's not also it's not who has the best toys either. Absolutely not. Um, you know, toys are great. There's this techno mysticism that we've attached to paranormal investigation that somehow legitimacy is only as good as the the handheld technology that we have. And and you're right that it has a role to play. But there are people who are decked out with equipment, and they are horrible in dealing with clients. They don't have any interpersonal communication skills. They have no real knowledge base. They don't know how to talk to people, and that's. You know, connecting with people is really, really important if you want to do this work, whether you're doing it from a spiritual perspective or you're legend tripping. And there's a lot of value in legend tripping. Um, But you really need to know how to connect with people and how to hear their stories because it goes back to that story. What people, all we really have to go on are the stories people tell about these events. Here's one way to look at it. If you're not good enough to interact with a living what makes you think you're going to be any better interacting with the dead yeah yeah and some of these people have uh, a lot of problems interacting with the living i can tell you for a fact i'm not <laughs> i'm looking directly at Moniz when i say that uh but the, the thing about about the technology though is uh the the main thing is that i think a lot of people will get in over their heads with it, uh, mm-hmm. especially those who are just starting out. It's it, you know They've got some money to invest. They want to start forming a group. We see it a lot this time of year because yeah. people start getting their tax returns, and they're like, well, I've got a couple grand that I can invest in equipment, and they go onto a website, and they start buying what they've seen on the most recent adventure, uh, Ghost Adventures episode, and that means that now that they've got it, they can just jump headfirst into it, but there's a great amount of training uh, that needs to take place to, to know how to utilize these uh, devices properly, which, for the most part, a lot of them aren't even being utilized properly if they're being used for the paranormal because that's not what they're intended well, for. Well, that's just it. A lot of people grab the material and go instantly into hunting with it. It's like, how about trying it out just in normal circumstances mm-hmm. to figure out how the thing really works and what its quirks are before you even take it in? It took me field. like two days to figure out how to turn on the flashlight on my Melmeter. <laughs> so what does oh that my. tell you? <laughs> Yeah, there's certain limitations to this equipment, too, that people often don't know. And I, I'm kind of philosophically, I'm having a, a turnaround with how I feel about equipment. I mean, I like it. You know, I, it, I think somebody once said getting new equipment for a paranormal investigator is like a little black dress. 
for a girl. I mean, it makes you feel sexy and important, and it does. I'm not going to lie. I like it when I get new equipment, but we tend to rely on it too much, and I, I have the whole K2. I've seen the K2 syndrome where new investigators will spend the whole night, like, staring at the K2, waiting for the lights to flash. Mm-hmm. And they can have like 500 apparitions and yeah, shadow people walking say. behind them, but you're not going to see it. So it it becomes it can become a crutch. It can it can offer fascinating insights to what's happening, but it can also become a really big crutch. And and many groups uh, will refuse to utilize somebody with uh, psychic abilities or mediumship abilities because they feel that it's not hard data. But yet yeah. that person's you know soul purpose of being on an investigation is to be able to to make those connections for you so why mm-hmm. wouldn't you utilize that if you could yeah if you can find someone who's reputable and you know is reputable i think it's it can be a very interesting component to your investigation and there are ways to correlate psychic impressions with data you collect on investigation and i talk about that in my second book uh, so you want to hunt ghosts i i look at how you can use psychics on an investigation in a in a controlled manner in a in a way that mimics parapsychology and, and scientific methodology so a lot of people don't know that you can do that you know they just let people walk through and say oh i'm getting a feeling here everyone can say that but there's ways to actually creatively use people with with real intuitive abilities i mean i didn't believe in utilizing uh, psychic abilities on an investigation per se until I actually was conducting an, an investigation and I had a piece of equipment telling mm-hmm. me something mm-hmm. and and it was actually it was a it was a shack hack it was a ghost box mm-hmm. and uh, but some information came through that meant something to the people that were there on the investigation with us and when our friend Tiffany Rice came in uh, a few minutes later. She'd been at the other end of the house. She hadn't heard that conversation when she came in and immediately started verifying everything that the device said. I wow. said, okay, now not only did you verify my belief in your abilities, but you also verified my belief in the equipment. Because yeah. I wasn't sure about either one until that conversation took place. See, when things like that happen, that is what fascinates me. That I mean, how do you really explain that when... You have a piece of equipment that is dubious. I mean, for a lot of people, think it's dubious, and then you have this amazing experience, and then somebody independently comes in after that and verifies that. That Those are the kind of things that I find incredibly intriguing. It's not even weird. It's just intriguing. Right. Because something's going on. We just don't know what. And if, and if that can be something that happens on your investigations, then why not have people with abilities as part of your group? Mm-hmm. Now, is there – I know that there's a, a lot of emphasis on structure within groups, that they everybody seems to have to have a role. And you talk about it in the book, uh, mm-hmm. and you also say that that might not be necessary for every group, but that for some groups they need to have that, that hierarchy that takes place. Uh, but within – the group framework, you must feel that there are some certain types of, of personalities or certain types of ability levels that must be present. Yeah, I do. I, I think that the whole structure of paranormal groups is interesting to me because after ta- after Ghost Hunters launched, there seemed to be the TAPS model. That became the dominant way that groups functioned to the point where I, I it's hard for me to believe that groups know what to do without that model, sort of the founder mentality and everything 
filters down from lead investigator to beginner investigator and all of that. Like you have to earn some sort of credentials to move up in the world. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, for the best, I I personally feel that everybody needs to have um, access to all, all components of investigation. There may be some people who are sensitives or really gifted with creating equipment and being innovative in that way. But everybody really needs to have, they need to know how to set up the equipment and break it down and to do everything required during an investigation. Right. That's something that we take as an approach uh, in everyday life. Mm -hmm. You know, like if if you're, say, I don't know, say you work in the deli of a supermarket and you're just the guy who cuts the cheese, no pun intended. You know, but what happens if the guy who cuts the roast beef isn't available that day mm -hmm. and you have to be called over to do that job? Or what happens if you want to be the manager someday, but all you know is how to slice the cheese? Then you need to kind of have uh, – and I only said supermarket, by the way, because there's a one right across the street. <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's the way that it goes is you have to learn every aspect of that job if you want to be able to do that job completely. Yeah, although I do think there is one particular role that there are some people better suited than others, and that's the case manager, the people who actually conduct the interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, some people just aren't good talking to people. They just don't know how to bring the stuff out needed, and you're going to have certain personalities better suited for that. It's just a, a communication skill. Some people just aren't going to have it. And I want to get in uh, in depth a little bit more in the second hour in talking about uh, client based investigating because that is something that is a whole different world than just grabbing some equipment and heading out to a haunted location. So uh, coming up in the second hour, second hour, uh, I know that we only get you for a bit in that in that second hour, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit more in depth. Uh, but that does seem to be the determination that groups don't make when they're mm -hmm. going into this and you recommend in their kind of self-evaluation that they should go through at the beginning of the process is they need to look at that and look at whether or not they want to be involved in these private residential cases because it definitely is a different world. It is a very different world and there's a lot at stake when you go into somebody's home because they, they're letting you in to their intimate spaces and telling you things that they probably don't tell a lot of people. And um, there, there's a, a whole set of ethics that investigators need to consider, and sometimes I think that many don't. I know that when I, you know, go away for the night, mm -hmm. and I have a neighbor come over and like feed my dog, and, like let my dog out, I'm worried the whole time that that person's probably going through my underwear drawer. <laughs> oh so, no! So you can do you only have, <laughs> do you have nice underwear? I mean, I do, but I, I don't. I have weird right, neighbors. The show's starting to take so. a wrong turn. <laughs> I can just picture my next door neighbor. She's holding up my boxers, but uh, no. But uh, you know, you know what I mean, though. You get concerned when you yeah. let people into your house and you and you give up that control yeah. uh, of your home yeah. and, and put it in somebody else's hands. So I can only imagine what it must be like for paranormal investigate uh, for people who call in these paranormal investigators because not only are they putting uh, you know their their own belief system in the hands of somebody else, mm -hmm. but they're also trusting you with their home, with their valuables. Uh, and I don't think enough groups take that into account. And they don't, they don't respect that boundary. Unfortunately, you're right. And, and that's disturbing. And another thing that we find a lot of groups come in and they spend several hours at someone's home and then 
the homeowner never hears from them, ever. Um, they never get any feedback if they found something, if they didn't. And that's really disturbing because you've, you've wasted the, home, the homeowner's time when you do that. But one thing that is of concern to me is we know that a lot of, at least in my opinion, most of the time when you go into someone's home, you're probably not going to experience something, even though there, may, there truly may be things happening in the home. You know, one investigation, a couple hours, you're probably not going to experience it. But in, in some cases, we are, groups who go in are the first people to hear these stories that clients are telling. And in a lot of ways, we're first responders because there are times when there are other things going on in the home that, that in addition to the activity, and, and, and I hate to get really morbid here, but sometimes there, there's abuse in the home, there's drug use, there's underlying mental health issues. Um, that may or may not be contributing to the activity. And, and many of us in the community really aren't equipped to diagnose these things or to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And it's, we have believe to... Believe me, some of us are uh, suffering from these same afflictions. Yes, yes. And, and we, we need to have a sensitivity to that. But also we need to know how to, to talk to people when we suspect these things are going on. And it doesn't, even though someone may have a mental health issue, it doesn't mean that there's not things happening in the home. There's some people who suggest people who have mental health issues could be agents for activity. But when people are asking us for help, it isn't just about the paranormal. If we see there's something that needs to be addressed, we need to know how to talk to a client and encouraging to, to get the right help. And we don't think about, I think a lot of us don't think about these issues. Like, you know, so what if they, they don't have a ghost? Do we know mental health resources in our community? What do you do if you suspect there's actually abuse going on in the home? We got a, a case um, email sometime last year. Um, somebody said, we think a demon's attack, attacking our, our baby, and the child was under a year old. And, and we didn't have enough information to follow up on this. And we, did, we chose not to because if you go into a home and there's a child and there's marks on the child and the parents are claiming it's a demon, you have a responsibility to report that. Right. And, I mean, that that's serious stuff. And I don't know how many teams really consider those things. And that's one of the things that I've, I've been given a lot of thought of uh, over the last few months is – that as a lot of these paranormal groups apply for nonprofit status, and you talk about that in the book too, that a lot of them will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as they apply for nonprofit status, and as they they try to uh, align themselves with the authorities within their particular town or region, so that they can be uh, considered a tool that's at the disposal of of people who are in crisis. Yeah, uh, I think that as they do that, one of the uh, requirements of, of having those types of benefits should be that they should also be considered mandatory reporters to the state. I, I 100% agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And that's another thing you for team for team members, you really do need to do background, background checks on people in your team um, because you don't want to be the one bringing a, a sex felon into somebody's home when there's children present. And, I mean, there are people who do have criminal records who are, are just fine, upstanding people who just made a bad mistake. Sure. So you have to use your discretion, but you really have to think about liability issues if you're bringing someone who's been in jail for grand larceny or theft or, you know, who is on a sex offender list. You really need to think about the implications of that. And also, likewise, if you have, you know, those types of marks on your on your. Uh 
personal file, then you need to be willing to share that and to express yeah. it if you do try to join a group. Don't don't try to hide that type of thing because you're putting everybody in your group in jeopardy. Exactly. And and there I mean there could be a role for you to play in the group, you know, regardless of that. It, it shouldn't necessarily exclude somebody, but definitely if you're going into certain homes, um, you know, the you have to be sensitive to to these things. And you're right. I think that people should be mandatory reporters. And I know Lord Orbach was looking into doing doing this, creating a database of psychologists and therapists across the country who we could refer clients to if we felt they needed additional mental health help, particularly people who therapists and mental health professionals who would be sensitive to paranormal events that wouldn't just dismiss them outright and i i know he was trying to find or he was encouraged to create such a database i may be able to help him with that because i do lots of work with abduction uh experiencers and we have wow we have networks across the states for uh just that purpose now if they're open to people having abduction experiences i'm sure people having paranormal experiences not much of a reach for them i may be able to uh no i think that would be great because that's something missing you know when we need people sometimes can't even go to their clergy because they'll be dismissed they need to talk to somebody about these events or even if they're not really happening they need to talk to somebody about what's going on and somebody who's not going to say that they're crazy so i think that would be wonderful yeah man we'll you know, you know how to get a hold of Lloyd, and yeah. he's he's pretty mm-hmm. accessible, yeah. and uh, that's that's definitely something that we can also pursue. I think for a future topic uh, here on the show, I'd love to talk to some of these people. You know, obviously they might have some desire to remain anonymous, but I would yeah. like to talk no, to I've some. I've got of them. a handful that are very, very vocal and very open about being therapists, helping people that, well, with abduction cases. Talk to Chris. We, talk to Chris. Sure. We got a book one, but we are coming up uh, on the end of the first hour here. But coming up on the second hour, I want to talk, as I said, more about getting involved with client-based investigations. I want to talk about uh, group dynamics, which you discuss in the book as well. And I also want to find out your thoughts on uh, on gender roles in the paranormal as well, because I think that that's something that people don't take into account when they get involved in this as well. So we'll we'll continue the discussion with our guest, Deanna Kelly, coming up in the next hour. Uh, and we will take your calls as well, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. Also, uh, just real quick, we mentioned the idea of legend tripping. And, of course, if you want to join us for a Legend Trips event, just go to legendtrips.com. We are currently offering tickets to Haunting the Houghton. It will be at the Houghton Mansion in North Adams, Mass., uh, April 5th through the 7th. It's an entire three-day weekend event. Tickets are just $149. So go to legendtrips.com to find out more, and we will be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are having a fantastic discussion with our guest tonight, Deanna Kelly, about her new book, So You Want to Hunt Ghosts, A Down-to-Earth Guide. And really, it does serve as uh, one of the best guides that I've read about how to go about getting involved in the paranormal field. And I've read a lot of these over the last, uh, you know, seven years now. And it seems like as we get closer and closer to uh, what's probably the inevitable end of this paranormal surge uh, in in mainstream culture, uh, because it does, it ebbs and flows, and and sooner or later it's going to wane. And as we get probably closer to the impending end of, of this focus on the paranormal in the mainstream, it hasn't slowed down the number of groups any at all, Deanna. 
Yeah, I know, right? You, um, you'd expect that it would start to drop off after a while. Well, what I, I'm seeing, and, and maybe you, I don't know if you agree with me or not. I mean, you, I, I'm interested in getting your take on it. I think there's a, a segment of people who came in, like a, when it really took off and are now getting kind of burned out, mm-hmm. or, or they're changing their focus within it. But there's this whole new set of people coming up um, uh, with a slightly different approach than before. I, I'm kind of noticing that, you know. And that's I definitely agree with that. That's what I would say I've seen, too. And uh, there may not be the same groups around that mm-hmm. were around uh, in the early days of, of the post-Ghost Hunters boom here. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those people might not be involved in the field anymore. Some of them might be involved in a different manner. But it it seems like each day there's more groups popping up, and they're not restricting themselves to to that format structure approach whatever you want to call it that the other ones were in the past and and is it that we're getting away from that one methodology because we've been exposed to other methodologies or is it because uh people are trying to find their own niche within the field i I don't know the reason behind that but it definitely seems like uh groups are willing to take more chances maybe than they were uh you know five or six years ago i think you're right i mean people are exposed to more ideas and they're they're trying to find their own space in the community but at the same time i mean there's only so many places that can be haunted there's only so many homes that you're going to be able to get into and people have to start developing new ways to be somebody and and what i'm noticing now again and i don't know if this is correct but it seems to me that a lot of the groups that are are now starting they're looking they they want more of a public persona profile rather than real invest like hardcore scientific investigation Mm -hmm. um that's just my observation and that's why you're starting to see people with certain um you know now you've got like the the hipster kids (laughs) forming their own groups and then the pretty people in one group and the hot girls with you know nice boobs in another group and so it's becoming more of a you know a gimmick you just reminded me of a joke though Okay. Well, <laughs> why did the p- hipster kid burn the roof of his mouth on his pizza? I don't know. He had to eat it before it was cool. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> I just like to share that joke anytime I can. But, no, you're right, though. There does seem to be uh, – I don't want to put anybody down here, yeah, but a lot of paranormal groups are essentially just social clubs. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You are so right about that. Now, the the question is, can you be a social club, though, and still do good work in the field? Because I think a number of them have, but I think there's a lot of them, too, that have turned into negatives. Yeah, I I mean, there is – you definitely want a community. You want to bond with your fellow investigators, so there's nothing wrong with having that element there. But um, (laughs) I think it's become not just a, a a social clique. It's become almost like an elitist thing. Like, well, we're in this group, and, and we're really cool because we're in this group, and we're far cooler than that group. And, you know, we're in this group, so we're going to walk around in our black T-shirts mm-hmm. that match. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm wearing a black T-shirt now. <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. And I get the goatee, too, which is another requirement for male. <laughs> all I need now is a backwards hat, and I'm all set. Are you bald? I mean. No, no. Well, you, you have to shave I'm the not. head. You have to be bald. I, I've done it from time to time, but. Yeah, and you have to wear, like, a North Face jacket when it's really cold and stuff. Yeah, see, I won't. I definitely won't do that. 
But, um, uh, yeah, and I'm not trying to poke fun at people. I actually I know, I know. like black T-shirts, and I have a few myself. But there's, there's almost like this requirement. There's some sort of aesthetic to it. And But I'm noticing that that ch- is changing because in the beginning we you did sort of have this, and I'm not trying to put anybody down, but it was the whole tap thing, this working class kind of persona. And then mm-hmm. Ghost Adventures came, and it was like pretty people, like pretty pretty boys. And and now you're starting to see a whole bunch of different people come in, and and try to make it make their claim. I even saw something once on YouTube, this psychic that wore like S and M bondage clothes on investigation. I mean that was definitely you know unique. It would certainly make it more interesting for the other investigators. Well, she, yeah, but she sort of investigated alone. See, what's the fun in that now? <laughs> because who else is going to make fun of her? Or you know, yeah, well, yeah, and I, I even knew there was a, um, a gay team, a LBGYT, a lesbian, gay, bisexual team, transgender team that is formed out in California, and so everybody you know who's in this has to make their sort of mark now. Is it though that they're making their mark, or is it that they want to kind of? Uh, be comfortable in their own skin within the the concept of of being a paranormal investigator. I mean, for some people, uh, being a paranormal investigator is a way to create a whole new identity for themselves. But to other people, they they have to have who they are be part of who they are as an investigator too. I think it's both. Uh, people certainly have to bring elements of their persona into this, particularly if they want to have some type of social or public legitimacy around this. They have to bring their own persona into it. And there, I mean, and something you hinted before the break is that it is a very heavily gendered and kind of a white male field. That's the way it's presented on TV. So if you're anything other than that, you know, you, you can really tell a unique story. So I think people are doing both. And I actually know a lot of people who don't tell anybody they do this because they are college professors or you know they're in a they're still in the the few professions where this has to be kept on the down low so i know this completely other side of it as well mm-hmm. which we take for granted that there are still some people who have to be really careful with this well you mentioned the idea of the white male investigator mm-hmm. and and uh like i said i know we've only got you to the bottom of the hour but i want to try and and touch on this a little bit at least and maybe we can have you back sometime in the future to talk about it for an entire show because the demographic of those that are involved in the paranormal is extremely striking to me yeah. uh, especially when you can kind of take yourself out of it and not necessarily worry about looking at it as your peers and who you've interacted with but look at it as you know those in in, in the community as a whole and i have to tell you that i'm very uh, dis heartened by the fact that I think that I've probably encountered maybe four or five black investigators in my seven years of communicating with people in the field. And mm-hmm. and uh, really, I've, I've encountered women in the field, of course, but there seems to be a very um, particular set of women that are involved in it. You know, yeah. you either have people that are... Uh, it, it's hard to kind of put them into categories but you mm-hmm. it, it seems like women are kind of brought on board to be the 
particularly to be the sensitive female side of the investigation team. Yeah. You know, they're being yeah. brought or in to have that one. the sensitive itself, the 90% well, yeah, of, of course. psychics. Are of there. course, yeah, the psychics and the sensitives, literally, in the literal sense. But uh, a lot of times they're looked to be uh, the motherly figure of the group or the feminine touch of the group and so that when, you know, the, the, the bald white guys with the goatees are going in there and they're not getting anything from the female ghost, they call the female investigator up from downstairs and they say, why don't you try you know, with your yeah. approach and one woman to another type thing. And it's almost like being a woman in the field means that you are uh, automatically going to be a second-class citizen. Yeah, you're tokenized. Right. And what's so fascinating to me, when I, I did this survey when I wrote my first book, an Internet survey of paranormal teams and people uh, anonymous, anonymously took the survey, and I well, actually did two for both, for both books. And every time um, the same statistics broke down – Slightly more than half of the field, about 52%, are women. It seems that women actually dominate the field, particularly when you go to events, you see more female people in the audience than males. And, and historically, women have always played a very important role in this research during spiritualism. And even before that, when we think about it, death occurred in the realm of women's space because it was women who often cared for the dying before people went into hospitals Great point, to die. Yeah. Um, people died in the company of women. So women were sort of the caretakers of, of, the, of the dead. So And, it's, and everybody you know, tends to gravitate toward that motherly figure. Yes. Uh, even if you're, if you're somebody who's passed on to the other side, why wouldn't you be drawn to that type of personality? Yeah. So it's fascinating to me that women have always played a really, really important visible role in this. It seems that the current paranormal community really behind the scenes is comprised, comprised of more women than men, yet the images of this in popular culture is the opposite. And even when you go to conferences, people who put on conferences often won't invite the few female pers personalities who are well-known. They, they will prefer lesser-known men over women who have written, like, 25, 30, 40 books on the subject. Rosemary Ellen Guiley? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's been excluded from things in favor over people who have been in the field for a year or two. Which is fascinating to me because if you spend any time with her, which I know that you have and, and mm -hmm. we have, and you only have to be around her for uh, a few minutes to realize not only is this a woman who, who knows her stuff, mm -hmm. but this is somebody who is is wired to do the type of thing that we're giving John Zaffis and Jason Grant and Zach Vegas mm -hmm. TV shows to do. I mean, she would be a terrific driving force of, of one of these type of shows, but I think part of what limits her is the fact that she's looked at as that woo-woo woman. Exactly. And she's actually really intelligent. I mean, she's highly oh, yeah. intelligent and well-spoken and a, a very nice person. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, well, you know, there's not a lot of women. There's a lot of women in the field. There's not a lot of women really out there in public producing stuff like Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And that's unfortunate. Someone like April Slaughter, um, who d does a lot of ITC work, and she's going to have a book coming out soon. She's another one who sort of gets bypassed, although some of her work is her um, research on ITC is groundbreaking. Yeah, I was going to say she's very groundbreaking in her in her approach and, and the fact that she definitely does not go into things with preconceived notions. You know, not at all, and you know she's not getting the attention she deserves. So I, I do wonder, you know, why why is this perceived as such a male dominated endeavor when historically it really hasn't been that way? And I don't really know if it's that way in reality. 
Well, part of the the problem is too, and again, I'm not trying to infuriate anybody, but you know, we have some friends who are paranormal investigators, and and one team in particular, and they are three attractive women, mm-hmm. and they utilize that as part of their their marketing for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that's like you know, it, it it's looked upon as it's an either or type of thing. You know, you can't be doing this to draw attention to yourself as a woman because then you're just trying to be famous. Yeah. And, and yeah. people don't feel – people don't put the same tags on, on the men about that as they do the women. You're right. And I often feel – you know, I'm just going to say this, and I don't want to offend anybody, but there, it's not that we have a bunch of, like, models in the paranormal community, both male or female, Um and I hope I'm not being offensive, but it's not like we're, you know, we're not getting the Hollywood-type people coming through. And that's really great because it's accessible. People can be themselves in the field. So when you have someone who's considered to be attractive in the Hollywood sense, that gets a lot of attention, and that can open doors. Right. And, I mean, most of America isn't attractive in the Hollywood sense, but when you have people come into the community who have those attributes um, – it makes them a little bit different. And if they're actually good investigators, then that's great. I have not met a lot of people like that who are highly, highly attractive and really good investigators, but I'm sure they're out there. Well, I mean, one of the prototypical examples of that is Chris Williams, who spent yeah. some time on Ghost Hunters, mm-hmm. Ghost Hunters International, where she came on, uh, you know, in, in the early days of the ghost hunters run but they'd already had a couple seasons under their belt and and she was known as somebody who had some acting credentials and it became mm-hmm. jason and grant are trying to put a pretty face on the team and they didn't realize that you know this is a woman who when we talked to her uh for we were her first ever radio interview here on spooky south coast and when she was talking to us she had just finished spending a 12-hour day laying floor Right. For her day job. So, I mean, this isn't somebody that was in it for the glamour aspect of it. And she got completely overlooked as an investigator by a lot of people because they saw her as just a pretty face. And likewise, you know, if somebody is in a group that, uh, you know, if a group has a woman in the group that might not be considered attractive, then people within that group are thinking, gee, we're never going to get a pilot when we get this high on our team. Yeah. I mean, and unfortunately, the reality is. Eye candy helps, and this is I'm not making a comment about Chris Williams, but that's just the nature of the entertainment industry that mm-hmm. it helps to have a pretty attractive woman on board and you know it seemed i i it seemed to me that when Chris went into g h i she really i don't know if this was intentional or if just the nature of of international travel, but she seemed to downplay a lot of her physicality and and sort of showed more investigative chops. Well. I was going to say, Chris is a very good friend of mine. I had mm-hmm. a chance to spend, you know, some time with her and a bunch of other folks. And she is a really down-to-earth mm-hmm. girl who is actually highly intelligent. I mean, her investigating skills outside of, you know, a haunted place are impeccable. She's one hell of a um, historical researcher. Most people don't know that about her. She's very, very adept at uh, historical research. And she she's very quiet and demure and, you know, outside of the camera. She's very she's a very real person. And uh, she is actually a very good investigator on her own. So and and I, I don't think that, you know, whether or not you're a good investigator is even on the radar mm-hmm. of the people who are looking 
to put people into uh, a media aspect. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, what, what does a TV producer know about the paranormal field and investigation techniques? They just want to look at somebody and be like, yes, you know, teenage boys are going to tune in to see her in night vision. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to ask you if you feel like that if Chris Williams never really was at, um, accurately represented on the shows. I rarely watched the show, so I can't mm -hmm. really tell. But um, the few I did see with her, no, th she was definitely more portrayed as eye candy than what yeah. her real ta talents and abilities were. Well, and, and my feeling about the shows, uh, and again, I don't really watch a lot of them myself anymore, but uh, the role that I've always seen the women in is they'll, they'll do all that they can uh, to set up the woman as an equal in a lot of you know the storyline building yeah. uh, to a case you know they have donna Lacroix as the case manager they have you know uh kristen gartland forelli was a case manager for a while you know they have them being the people that put together everything and doing all the hard work of getting them the cases and doing all that but then when the investigation itself happens and whether or not it's intentional or unintentional or if it's subtle or if it's overt but it happens uh, the the women are the women are kind of marginalized within the investigation aspect of it and they're sent off to go investigate on their own by themselves you know yeah. let's let's put this girl in the room alone in the dark and see what happens and they are they're they're kind of uh you know they're kind of turned into a prop uh for the show and yeah. i think a lot of groups have taken that and used that in their own investigations because they saw that on tv yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's something I was about to say, that, that those dynamics tend to be replicated in, on the ground, that women are, you know, kind of used as props or tokens. But at the same time, there's there are women who have established their own teams and are just rocking that, and those stories aren't told. You, know, you don't hear a lot about that in the public sphere, in the pop culture I, sphere. I give you a little bit of inside information here. As I, I developed a TV idea about uh, a female paranormal group and i got it in the hands of some hollywood producers and uh the main thing that they wanted they wanted attractive people yeah and i said i can't necessarily represent the field accurately in the way that i'm trying to do it in this format if i'm worried about how the people look but yeah of course that's that's just yeah. the way that it goes but yet with the men it doesn't matter because you know i don't think Half the people that are on these shows, people would be like, yes. I mean, it helps. Some of them are attractive. Uh, not that I'm checking out dudes, but I'm just <laughs> saying, like, you know, some of them you can really see the the uh, congeniality of them and the, the photogenicness of them on television. And and some people just look like regular everyday schlubs. Yeah. But now they're considered to have some sort of ideal sexuality because they're on TV and they exude some of these. Well, I mean, we project these things onto these average-looking men, which if they did not have a reality TV show, we probably really wouldn't look at them twice. I mean, no offense. Right. I don't think there's anyone hideous on TV, but it's just they're more attractive because they do have a TV show. Well, here's something for you to do. Go back and look at some of the first seasons of some of these ghost shows and look how these people now look. I know. They, they've I got know. personal trainers. They've got people that work on their hair and the way they hide certain things with makeup and stuff. Yeah. Whereas in the beginning shows that, uh, let's say the muffin top was a pretty standard outfit in some of <laughs> yeah. these groups. <laughs> that's true. And that's what I really loved about the early season of some of these shows. It was so real and charming and authentic. And it was like, you know, it was everyday normal people going into everyday normal homes. And that's, 
that's what motivated me when I saw that kind of authenticity in those first two seasons that this is great this is amazing because it wasn't so polished it was real you know I mean the emotion the experiences portrayed had some sort of authenticity to it and then when everything became glossy and shiny that's that's when I sort of started not to well the the sad part about it is uh I've heard stories about even then it Mm -hmm. was you know even then it was being concerned about what was being portrayed on the camera yeah. So even though it seemed authentic and real, you know what I mean? It was just that we hadn't – I think they put up more of an effort back then to make it appear real. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the case with any reality show. I'm not just picking on the paranormal shows, but, you know, not not everybody is accurately portrayed. I mean, it's easy f- for producers to be in their ear saying, okay, let's play up that aspect of yeah. your personality as part of it. Yeah, and some scenes are, are filmed again and again, and there's also – Scenes thrown in to create a narrative, and a lot of people don't, a lot of viewers don't really understand that, that, you know, narrative is constructed for each episode. Well, I I do feel like we kind of got away a little bit from the topic Mm -hmm. of the current book, so you want to hunt ghosts, and I I do apologize for that, but it's it's rare that we can pick the mind of somebody such as yourself who who is a fan of these programs and watches these programs, but also uh, can take them at face value as well, and... I think that a lot of these groups that are out there, you know, mm-hmm. or people who are either forming a group, wanting to start one, or just starting out, pick up a copy of this book. So you want to hunt and ghosts? Use this as your uh, as a way to build the foundation and the structure for your group, not what you see on the TV shows. Because you got to think those people, for the most part, that are doing that, went through these steps long before there were ever a TV camera in front of them. Yeah, they did, and a lot of people forget that. that- you know, there was a whole different, a whole different reality before reality TV took over, and I kind of regret that I didn't experience that. I think it would have been amazing to, to, to see what the community was like before um, cable TV entered the picture. But then again, you could have also turned into an old crotchety guy like Moniz, who, you know, was like, well, "Things were better back before they had these TV shows." Yeah. I'm sorry that lot, it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can, I can truly appreciate how it probably was. Yeah. Well, again, I'm sorry that we couldn't get into some more things uh, in depth. Hopefully you can join us sometime in the future and we can talk more. Especially I want to talk about client-based investigations because uh, that's the thing that I think a lot of people f- feel is the easiest way to get involved in the paranormal. And it's the thing that can do the most damage and can cause the most problems and, and can really make or break your reputation if it's done wrong. So anybody that's thinking about doing that should definitely pick up this book so you want to hunt ghosts and read the chapters that are in here on that because I think that you lay it out very plainly and it, it seems like you're not really uh, that concerned about whether or not people are going to agree with your approach. You're just putting it out there as this is the way that it's got to be done in order to have it maintain credibility, and it's hard to argue with it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the feedback. You know, I really haven't heard a lot of feedback from the book. I know that people are buying it and people read it, but nobody has – well, nobody sent me hate mail, which I guess is good. But, <laughs> you know, I really haven't heard anybody say much about it. So I appreciate you um, I appreciate you giving me the, the shout-out. Well, this is I'm going to definitely recommend it to anybody that that's just starting out. And if you have been involved in the field for a long time, maybe you want to read it and and kind of reevaluate things as well because uh it never hurts to have a little self-reflection and uh especially groups these days that have kind of come in in this post-reality show era 
and now they need to kind of think about where they want to go as as let's face it you know trying to do everything like you see on tv uh is only going to work for so long before you need to have a new injection uh into what you do and, and this book can help that even for the season pros well thank you you get bored after a while doing the same thing you see every week on tv believe me it becomes less satisfying over a period of time i, I got bored just watching the show so i can only imagine <laughs> what it'd be like trying to be out there copying them every week all right well thank you so much diana for joining us and everybody can go to your website right you want to give your website up yes um you can go to my website diana com. it's d-e-o-n-n-a-k-e-l-l-i-s-a-y-e-d.com and um I just want to say that I will be in Shreveport, Louisiana, the last, I believe it's the last weekend in June. They're having a paranormal extravaganza weekend, and the city of Shreveport has invited me. So if you are down there in the area, please come out and um, participate in supporting downtown and the development of downtown Shreveport, and I'm really happy to be part of that. I'm looking forward to it. I'd love to meet, meet you guys. and Look me up on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, yes, you are very prolific in the social media. Thank you. People can always get a hold of you that way and, and through your website, and it's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well. we got to get you up here in New England sometime. We'd love to investigate with you. Oh, I'd love to come up there. I'd, I would, I'm really at a point now where I want to start investigating with a whole bunch of different people and a whole bunch of different methodologies and philosophies. I'm kind of like I'm, – I'm sort of ready to sort of start over in a way and, and just have a whole new set of experiences. So I would love to come up there. All right. Well, if you, if you do, just be sure to look us up. We'll take you to a, a few of our favorite haunts, and, and uh, we'll give you definitely a fresh set of eyes, that's for sure. Oh, I would love that. Thank you for inviting me, or at least offering. If I'm up there, I will definitely look you up. All right, cool. Thanks so much, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you in the future. Okay. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. That is our guest, Deanna Kelly. Again, check out our website, com, linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. And the name of the book, once again, is So You Want to Hunt Ghosts, A Down-to-Earth Guide. I'm going to throw it up here so Moniz can kind of give you a shot of it. And it is, uh, again, it's published by Llewellyn, so you can get it through their website. You can get it anywhere that books are sold. And uh, really, if you know somebody that wants to get involved in the field, I highly recommend that you... Uh, get them a copy of this book. Make sure that they get it in their hands and that they read it. And if you've been involved in the field for a while, check it out. Read it. I mean, I, I can only imagine uh, that there's got to be something from this that you can take uh, and apply to what you're doing. Moniz, you've been doing this for a long time. I can't imagine that uh, you've stayed I don't want to say faith. I can't imagine that you've remained tied into one approach over these nearly 30 years that you've been investigating. No, I, like I said, as a scientist, you use every tool you have available to you. So the whole point is try anything and everything. So you did this in the early days from, from the history that you've told me, uh, with your mentor, Maurice, yep. and he kind of took you under his wing and, and, uh, and, Taught you the rights and the wrongs of investigation. Yep. And uh, I do believe, if I remember right, when you were a college student, you did have an or you were part of an organization, organization. with some other yep. uh, investigators. And, and so was that dynamic then at that time, you know, 200 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> but was that similar to what we're seeing now with the group structure of today or was it different? Oh, d- definitely different. Uh, we were all into this for the same reasons. And what we did was we all went and did our own things or we would go in collectively. But it wasn't a case where 
I'm the group leader. I'm the founder, and we do, we're following my rules. No, is everybody is like, bring whatever you can bring to the table, and we all tossed on the table what we got, what we like to to use, and whatever worked for us, we worked with. And you know, if I didn't like say what John was using, I didn't bother with what he was doing, or you know, it, back and forth, and it was all about the individual going getting the experience and sharing what they got it wasn't about hey i went and did this no here's here's what i did mm-hmm. here's what i got what do you think well i noticed that we have a number of people in the chat room and just looking at some of the names of our regulars we have a lot of people who are uh who have been involved in groups uh, a lot of people who have been independent investigators, some people who have gone both routes uh, during their time as investigators. So if anybody wants to call in and share your thoughts, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And, you know, what are some of the good things that you've seen in the group dynamic? What are some of the positives you've taken from it? What are some of the negatives that you've taken from it? And one thing that I can say is a negative, at least in my opinion, and looking at a lot of these groups is – there becomes a lot of animosity that can be built up very easily uh, as, as one group will be combative with another. And then you have elements within a group that become combative with each other. And I just feel like a lot of times it becomes so almost it's it's hurting you to be part of a group. It's it's holding you back as an investigator because you have to worry about these social dynamics uh, more than the actual paranormal investigation. If you have it structured as a hierarchical group, yeah, you're going to have issues. If you're going in as a group where everybody is equal, you're you're there to contribute as you know a but, uniform. But then. but by having a group where everybody's equal. Uh, in something that is so part-time for a lot of people, doesn't it make it kind of hard to have a, a good organizational structure? Well, you're assuming that, you know, the organization needs to be in the people. No, the organization needs to be in the methodology. But there needs to be certain people who do take on certain roles. Right. And wouldn't that naturally just lend itself to a hierarchy developing out of it? No. Think of it as a band. Not everybody's going to be the lead guitarist, uh, you know. But but all of them together make the band. It is also easy in a band setup for the bass player to be jealous of the solo time that the lead guitarist gets. So I mean, there there is kind of that that way of going about. It. I mean, you, now you've been working as an independent investigator for for a number of years now, and but one of the things that you'll do is you may go and investigate something on your own. as a straight-out independent investigator, but you will also uh, float around and work with other groups or invite certain people from other groups, uh, not necessarily the entire group to join you, but maybe pick and choose the people that you want to work with. And have you found that in those years of doing that, has that been uh, a much more successful approach in acquiring evidence and in assisting people and in getting down to the bottom of some of these cases than if you had a group of regular people that could be like your quote-unquote family that you could lean on? Oh, I've definitely found it easier to work with the people that have, you know, that I clicked with in a certain sense. I've done things, you know, by myself or with one other person and gotten results. And then I've gone and done things with groups, large groups, you know, as many as 12 people. 
at, as long as the space is large enough, that's not mm-hmm. a problem. But, you know, when you try and fit 12 people in a three-room house, it's, you know, gets a little complicated. See, I think that, and I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into the, uh, my own beliefs about what paranormal investigation should be, but I think that there's a lot of things that have popped up about group investigation that have become accepted when they don't necessarily have to be accepted. One of the things that does bother me is when people say that there's too many people present at an investigation. And I don't think that there can be too many people present. I think there can be too many people present that aren't observing the proper etiquette on that investigation. You can throw me into Lizzie Borden's with 50 people, and I guarantee you I can get results as long as those 50 people aren't contaminating the evidence. Right. So it's not necessarily the number of people that's involved. It's it's the way that the people go about it. And I think that's why you hear about these groups where people knock a group of, oh, they have 25 investigators. So how can they ever get any quality evidence if they have 25 people running around investigation? Well, if they're all on the same page yeah. and they're doing their job right, I don't see any problem with How them. often does that happen, though? Yeah, that's and there's the rub. But it goes back to what Dion is talking about in this book, So You Want to Hunt Ghosts, and, and the need to have that organizational structure put in place. It It's one of the few hobbies where you can get involved in, where you can just kind of jump in with both feet and... Get results. And, and get results and feel like you're on equal yeah. standing with people that have been doing it for 20 years. I know that, just as an example, and we'll stick with the band analogy, Okay, a couple years ago... I bought a guitar at a yard sale. And so I decided to start taking some guitar lessons, something I always wanted to do and never really had the time to do. And I know that I don't have as much time to put into it as other people might. And so I would go to my weekly lesson. I would practice a little bit during the week, and that was it. I didn't spend an hour a day practicing like I should, and therefore I, I didn't get really any better at it, and I didn't stick with it necessarily. Well, you got to go to the crossroads. I know. That would be the easiest route, and uh, I would like to go there someday, but that, <laughs> that's a different story. But so I didn't put into it as much as I, I wanted to, but I like to go and have that lesson and have that weekly therapy of – you know, just for a half an hour, this is all I'm focusing on. And then to go home at night, pick up my guitar, and I still do it, even though I don't take the lessons and I don't I don't play, I will still pick up my guitar and just mess around. And I I do like that release that I get from doing it. And I think that a lot of people look at paranormal investigation the same way. Now I know that I'm not on par with Matt Costa, who can play a lot better than I can, and every time I see him I just shake my head and say, Wow, you know, you're you're pretty good at this. And he will tell you, likewise, he's not nearly good enough to be in a band as some of these other guitarists that we know. You know, I'm no Matt Costa. Matt Costa's no Ethan Brosh. So it just kind of shows you that uh, there's different levels of ability in this, but we're all only getting out of it what we've put into it. And I think that that's what's lost on a lot of groups. They think that because, you know, they pick up that paranormal guitar that they're ready to solo, like, the people they see on TV when, in fact, they haven't put in the lesson hours and the practice time to do so. Okay. If that, I mean, it might have been a stretch. Yeah. Playing rock band doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if it did, I mean, that's the first thing I saw when I picked up my guitar. It's like, where's the yellow, red, and green buttons? You know, and, and that's uh, – and but likewise, after I started taking a few lessons, I start playing rock band and I start yelling out the actual chords. So, <laughs> you know, either way. But – the 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 big thing about it with the group dynamic is the the main thing is you have to find the right people 
if you're yes. going to be involved in a group, it's it's got to be the right people. And for that reason, I always recommend to people, first of all, try to go the independent route if you can. And try to shadow a number of groups and and see their different approaches. You know, say to and them, individuals. I, I kind of want to see what you're doing and see how you do it. And then a lot of people I recommend to them, maybe it's best for you to just start your own group and not join an already established group because you might have your own set of ideas and, and protocols and how you want to do things, and it might not jive with how somebody else is doing it. Uh, but the one recommendation that I do try to make to people as often as I can is not to um, go the route of investigating with complete and total strangers. You know, you need to surround yourself with people who you're familiar with and people that you can work with. That's fine in a local level, but suppose you're, you know, heading out to, say, Oregon. You're not going to bring your whole team out there or, you know, unless you've got, you know, the bucks to do it or they all want to go out there. I mean, you you develop and cultivate friendships online or whatever and try and hopefully have a guide show you around those areas out there. You know, it, are you going to gel with that individual or team? You don't know until you try. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking if you're going to spend massive amount of hours learning about something, then that might be a good way to go and to make yourself feel comfortable. Or at least at least know the people outside of the group dynamic. You know, I'm not saying, like, you can only form a group with your cousin, your brother, and your best friend from down the street. But I'm just saying you need to be more attuned with these people than just what happens on an investigation. Uh, for example, you know, our friends Capers. Yes. You know, they, they have their monthly meetings. And when they do that, after they're done, everybody goes out and has dinner together. And as a group, they have frequent meetings and they have frequent events that they do as a group. And it's not just about the investigations with them. And a number of other paranormal groups that we know, you know, they have barbecues with each other. You know, that's that's you have to have that bond for the group dynamic to really work properly. Otherwise, it's going to be a hobby that turns into a job really fast. And as you know, you don't always necessarily <laughs> like the people that you have to work with at your job. Luckily, this one I do, but yeah, I understand. Well, but even then, you know, it only takes, you know, if if one disruptive element comes into that dynamic, right? You know, it can throw everybody off their game, and the same thing can happen on investigations. So, uh, anybody out there, we'd like to hear your thoughts. Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. The other concern that I have when when people are first getting involved in this, and I mentioned this a little bit with Deanna when we had her on, is the idea that they do want to kind of just jump into uh, getting involved in residential cases and helping homeowners. And I don't get involved in those cases. I, I Here's my thought on that. If you're just starting a group, by all means, start off with public haunts, so to speak. You're the open to the public type of thing and some of the the business type haunts places like lizzie's or you know some of these other larger haunted places before you start going into homes mm -hmm. first you got to understand what's going on it's much easier to make your mistakes in a public place learn the equipment in in these public places before you get into a home because you're not going to be able to help anybody if you don't know or at least have somewhat of a handle on what's going to happen. 
You know what I'm saying? I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I personally do not get involved in residential cases. Uh, if one comes my way, I usually call me, refer it to you. Or if there is another group that's in the area that I think would be better suited, you know, I usually will contact that group. And I usually, you know, I CC you on yeah. the email so yeah. that you, you know that I'm doing it. But um, there's been cases that I felt are good fits for certain investigators and what I know of them. So I will kind of recommend them. If somebody contacts me and says that they feel they have a demonic case, I usually refer it to Keith Johnson. Uh, and I just I don't have an interest in going into somebody else's house and trying to make these determinations for them. I don't feel that that is uh, my best avenue for, for pursuing the paranormal. But I do understand that people can help. And what probably impressed me the most in the time that I've known you in the investigation that you've conducted is the, the few times that you've come to me and told me about a case and said, you know, we're walking away from this one because you feel that there is something that goes beyond the paranormal that has to do with the people themselves. Yes. And it's something that you don't feel qualified to right. help them with. And that when you've suggested to them, they need to get that help. They've blown it off and been like, you know, no, it's not us. It's, it's the paranormal. Uh, that happens more often than, than I like. And yeah, I am not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm a chemist. I can tell you what's going on in your brain chemically, but the reason why you're having other uh, you can't emotional, help, yeah, you can't help them stop it from happening, right? You know, you got to go talk to somebody else that may be able to help you better than I can, and that's all I can do is point them in that direction. If they choose not to seek that help, and there's, there's nothing I can. In do. some cases, they've used you saying that to them. And kind of turn it around on you. Yeah. Well, uh, but yeah. Uh, that's that's what happens when you tell people the truth that they don't want to hear. But I don't think that a lot of groups take that into consideration when they get involved in things. I think that they, uh, they want to be the last bastion of help for these people so badly that they will kind of get in over their heads. And it's a, it's a double-edged sword, though, because you can – you can do damage by ignoring that possibility that there's something going on in the family dynamic in the home. Uh, and you can also do even more damage by feeling like you're qualified to help them in that situation. I mean, some, some paranormal investigators, unfortunately also consider themselves armchair, armchair psychologists. Unless you've got the, uh, initials after your name from an accredited, you know, um, university, I would, I really don't recommend it. Yes, certain investigators can make great listeners, and in a lot of cases, that's maybe all some of these people really, really need. But if you're going to start giving advice about how to deal with the emotions and what's happening with this, and that, no, it, you you need a, a professional to do that, and in a lot of cases, they do more damage than good, and it. it it takes a professional a lot longer once they finally do get to them to, to unravel the rest of it. Now, here's another interesting quandary. I've come across this on a couple of occasions where the person has, um, let's call them issues, but they actually live in a haunted house. And it's trying right. to separate the two things that can get really messy. It goes back to what I always say. Just because somebody's schizophrenic doesn't mean they're nuts. Yeah. You know, it, it could or the be. Ho the, their house isn't haunted yet. Right. And, and it could be that, you know, there are voices that they're hearing that aren't caused by their own brain. And 
one of the things that I have in my uh, on my paranormal shelf at home, I have an entire you know giant IKEA bookshelf that's loaded with all paranormal books, things that we get yeah. sent to us on the show, things that I've bought and for research purposes, things you've written. Yeah, a couple of those things. <laughs> but And it's also got, you know, what I would consider to be reference guides and reference materials if somebody was to go on an investigation. And one of the things that I think every investigator should have as part of their own library is a book called The Big Book of Pills. Yep. And they put it out there all the time as, as revised editions, as more and more pharmaceuticals come out. Moniz, I know this is your area of expertise, so you know about this kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, for the average everyday Joe who's out there doing these investigations, they should have this book. And on the questionnaire, uh, which uh, Deanna writes about in So You Want to Hunt Ghosts and, and a number of investigators you guys. Physicians Desk Reference, yes. They ask you in. They suggest to you in these books, and, and Dionas in particular, that you uh, have a questionnaire that the client answers. And again, I know that Chris hates the term client, but I'm using that as the term that people use. Uh, but the homeowner, the residential case, the subject matter, so the requester, but whoever it is, you know, you ask them what medications the people are on in the house, and if they list medications and you go and you look them up in this big book of pills or the phys- physician's desk reference and if it says you know causes hallucinations paranoia uh, any of those type of things that's when you immediately have to say unless you are a qualified physician or a mental health specialist you have to back away from that case because you don't know where the line is drawn between what's really happening and what those medications might be causing you don't know what kind of damage you could be doing by uh, even just investigating and saying, well, you know, it could be your own uh, imagination. It could be a side effect of this medication that you're taking, but let me just go in and make sure. By doing that, you could be playing into somebody's psychosis and you could be causing more damage than good. Right. So, well, again, uh, I didn't mean to soapbox here a little bit, but that's kind of the way that I feel about people going into to residential cases, uh, especially if they're not prepared. It's, it takes a very particular type of person and i think a very seasoned investigator to be able to do that effectively uh like like i said if you go into the um the public places first learn to work the equipment have a couple of paranormal quote-unquote experiences out in these public places so you understand what you're dealing with and get a little bit of a feel for it then when you start getting other people saying hey my house is haunted as long as there isn't a a bit of trepidation for the person you know living in it in other words they're they've accepted it and they're not uh having some sort of physical chemical or mental delusions type of thing then yeah you can go into a, a residential home but once you start trying to um assuage fears in any way and tell them that oh, i can get rid of this i can stop this and you know because the only thing that w- any of us can really actually truly do is just document it and help the person, you know, understand that they're, that this is happening. No more than that. Be- and if you really think that uh, you have any more power than that, I think in some cases you may be more crazier than some of the people. <laughs> Well, and in some cases, you know, the investigators are crazy. We don't hold that against them. Obviously, we let you keep coming. I don't suffer from insanity. I enjoy every minute of it. (laughs) 
Well, we are just about out of time for this week's show. But uh, again, hopefully, uh, if you know anybody that's thinking about getting involved in the paranormal, you know, have them uh, listen to the show, recommend the podcast to them, point them in the direction of the archives, either on iTunes or on YouTube, if you want to see the video, and uh, and also. You know, make sure that they definitely get a, a hold of uh, Deanna's book, So You Want to Hunt Ghosts, A Down-to-Earth Guide by Deanna Kelly. And really, this is, if you're thinking about getting involved in it, read this book, and you'll know by the end if it's uh, if it's the right thing for you. If you need to have your questions answered, if you need to have your own experiences, uh, and if you need to have, uh, if you have an overwhelming urge to help people, you know, there's there's different approaches portrayed in this book to help you uh, decide which route is right for you to go from from there so that does it for this week's show we will be back next week uh and i believe the plan is to talk about poltergeist with our guest jeff holder uh we had him on the show previously and he is just a a terrific guest and uh it's going to be one of our skype conversations because i believe he's overseas so it should be fascinating to see if the technology will hold up for that but uh i'm very very excited to talk about the topic of poltergeist because we've never really explored it in full depth here on the show. We've touched upon it and we've never gotten into it. I know that one of my earliest experiences could have been a poltergeist uh, case. So, you know, that's something. And that's, by the way, I got to talk to you. We're, we're making a go of trying to get into the place where I've had my first experiences. Really? So this, that, that's going to be a, an outstanding opportunity if we, can, if we can pull it off. The only problem is, is like so many people want to go and be involved in this investigation <laughs> that, again, like I said, you can't have too many people. But uh, in this particular instance, there's only a few select people that are going to be able to go. Uh, and again, but it's, we have the opportunity to put together a dream team when it comes to investigating that a lot of groups might not have the ability to do. So we'll definitely do that, including bringing... Uh, the former focus of the activity back in is ghost bait. So should be fun. But anyway, we'll talk about... You're used to it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about Poltergeist next week with our guest, Jeff Holder. Uh, Until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular.